0: Welcome to the Sinica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at supchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. If you've been listening to this podcast in the last several weeks, you'll know that I've got something of a theme going, looking at the different ways we approach understanding China. As with any society, I hope it should go without saying that one vital perspective on it should be its humanities. Uh, Without a sense of the role played by the arts and letters, uh, by by culture of all brows, as it were, can we really say that we know anything about a society? Uh, That's why I was really excited to see a new book by Megan Walsh called the subplot, what China is reading and why it matters. Immediately, I thought that a conversation with the author would slot right into this series, and on reading the book, I was not at all disappointed. Megan Walsh is a journalist who lived and worked in Beijing for a number of years in the 2000s and early 2010s, studied Chinese literature extensively at SOAS, and has done the English reading world a great service by producing a remarkably slim little volume that nonetheless covers a huge range of Chinese writers from the country's better-known, well-established authors like Mo Yan and Yen Lianke, to migrant workers, uh, to genre fiction writers working in pulpier categories like detective or crime fiction and and romance, uh, to the science fiction writers like Liu Cixin, Hao Jingfang, and and Chen Chiu-Fan, who've drawn quite a bit of attention lately, Uh, and also... And this is the the really crazy part To the legions of mostly anonymous writers Who churn out just tens of thousands of characters Literally a day To feed the insatiable appetite of fans Who are mostly commuters I guess reading serial stories on their smartphones And, and while these are mostly lacking in What one might think of as conventional literary merit They are certainly popular And they have been the basis for just about every TV show Produced in China and popularized On China's many streaming services in recent years So just like you need to view China through a bunch of different lenses, uh, you need to view China's literary scene through a, a, a full array of, of, of genre lenses as well to get a clear picture. And that's what Megan's book, The Subplot, delivers. Megan Walsh, welcome to Seneca.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Kaiser.
0: So delighted that you could join. So Megan, like many people who were first exposed to modern Chinese literature, your first love was Eileen Chang, if I'm not mistaken, Zhang Eileen Uh, You wrote extensively while at Soas about another uh, woman writer, Ding Ling, who was just a hugely, hugely influential author in the mid-1920s, 1930s. But talk about your early exposure to what we would call contemporary Chinese fiction. Who were some of the authors writing, say, from the 80s onward who really first grabbed you?
1: Yeah, so um, the first writer that I, I really actually properly engaged with was Ma Jian. It was around the time of Beijing Coma. I reviewed it while I was working at the Times of London book section. And I also got the opportunity to interview him. And uh, he was, you know, just such a firecracker. He really didn't pull any punches. And I found his anger and clarity of expression and ideas incredibly energizing when I spoke to him. And, And I guess even though I'd lived in China before that, he was the first author that I properly engaged mm. with in a meaningful sense once I got back, and that's then what knocked me into people like Yan Ke, who I I still would probably say is my my favorite from that era.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then obviously Yu Hua and uh, Mo Yan and Su Tong.
0: Yeah, so those are you know five of the biggest writers of, of that of that age, um, but. They just sort of represent one corner of the, the spread of genres that you cover. The the sheer number, though, I I mean, I feel really, I was sort of blown away by all that you seem to have read. The number of, of just novels and short stories that you reference in this book of yours is pretty mind-blowing. Uh, how long did you spend just reading for this book? And how much of it did you read in the original Chinese as opposed to in English translation?
1: Yeah, I was worried you were going to ask me that. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I, I went into into um, the reading and researching process with uh, great intentions of reading as much as I possibly could in Chinese, and just very quickly fell to my knees and realized I just couldn't get through it all, especially if I wanted to cover the, I guess, the range and diversity I really wanted to um, include in the book. So I would say. In the end, quite a small number of books were read in Chinese and they were exclusively the ones that I couldn't get hold of in translation in any form here. Uh Um, And then the rest, I take my hat off to the very talented translators who've done a really amazing job. It's a sort of labor of love for so many of them. And uh, I relied heavily on their work.
0: Yeah, there's just such a wonderful core of translators. I'm doing everything from, you know, Worker poetry and worker fiction, like Eleanor Goodman's doing, to all those people who were associated with the paper *Public* in in Beijing. Oh yeah, yeah. And then you know, sort of old stalwarts like Howard Goldblatt, right? Uh, and, yeah. Uh, there's a great list of the translators that you you, you sort of tip your hat to uh, toward the end in your in your acknowledgments, and uh, it's a, it's a real who's who. <laughs>
1: I'm completely indebted to them. I, I can't. I can't lie.
0: Yeah, but uh, you did have to read all of this this stuff on the web, though that, that I, I can't imagine has been translated yet. That must have been.
1: Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, you'd be pleased to hear that some of it has been. Um, so you know, you can go and check it out. There's there's also some very uh, devoted translators. Some of them, I think, are extremely young who do very bad translations of. Arguably, quite bad novels, um, <laughs> but you do still get a sense of, uh, you know, the the kind of thing that is being read and written online.
0: Well, maybe the uh, the, the badness of the translation is an accurate reflection of the, <laughs> the quality. Or of I'll the just blame actual the actual
1: translation. Words.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's fantastic. I feel a little bit better. I mean, because I wouldn't, I I would have struggled. I, I struggle to read in Chinese anything longer than you know a couple of pages. So. Um, <laughs> uh, when you, you know, look at, so I, I mean, I, I, it strikes me always when I look at sort of some of the literature that emerged in the eighties and the nineties, especially, but, you know, when you look at the literature of the May 4th era, all the way up to Yan'an An, and you compare it to the literature that, that, you know, we, we've been talking about just now, you know, the, 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 and the Mo'yans and stuff. Um, it's hard not to see a lot of continuity. Um, there's still a lot of, you know, cultural self-flagellation, I guess you could call it, uh, It's there, it's this loathing and contempt directed in a lot of the celebrated modern literature that that we're familiar with at what these writers perceive to be kind of fundamental flaws in in the Chinese psyche or in the Chinese character. Uh, It seems that May 4th casts a really long shadow. I mean, does it strike you the same way? And what do you think This says about Chinese society, about critical Chinese writers, uh, that these themes seem to be so persistent? Mm.
1: I mean, I don't think that... writers of the 80s and 90s are so preoccupied with the inherent flaws of the Chinese character or society, even though they are very much preoccupied with them. But I do think the thing that links them or the shadow that has been cast is the the need for writing to serve a purpose, Mm. that it carries this burden, this kind of moral burden almost to reform society, to change it, to expose what is problematic in people's thinking or how society is structured. So I agree there is, there is a sort of degree of continuity in that sense. But I also think, especially with writer like Yen Nian Ke and Yu Hua, um, also someone as singular as San Xue, I don't think they feel like they are standing on the shoulders of giants. I feel like they have spent a long time honing their craft figuring out what they feel about uh, their past, about China, about society itself. And um, their work is entirely unique to them, really. I think the problem seems to be more for the generations after them who are really struggling to find a voice in this new ascendant China.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It it feels like prior to uh, Yan'an, prior to the 1940s, There was that, that, a real sense of that burden. You know, you had to write for national salvation or national enlightenment. You had to, you know, uh, to do all that soul searching. And to to not have taken up that mantle would have just sort of marked you as, as frivolous. To have not written politically during the years of high Maoism would have been not just dangerous, but, uh, you know, it would have been seen, dismissed as, as, you know, bourgeois, right? And, and, and frivolous Mm -hmm. again. And then, in the aftermath, once again, I mean, if you're not riding to the, the you know, to the devastation culturally left by those years of high Maoism, uh, I, I mean, so it's it, it, what you're saying is that that now that they're no, they don't feel burdened necessarily by politics, they're struggling to find a voice. That's that's kind of tragic, huh?
1: I, I I have really sensed that. I, you know, I, I'm sort of reading various blogs and. Interviews on things like China Writer, which is, you know, one of the kind of state-backed sites for, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for young writers. And um, a lot of them, when they're asked about what characterizes their fiction is, they they feel like they don't have anything important to say. They, they feel like there's, because they haven't suffered in the same way as their parents, because they um, have had a better life, they they somehow are like struggling to find a subject and arguably their own sort of subjectivity while writing. And I get the sense that's something they've slightly inherited. They've been kind of told these things and it's part of being, I guess, kind of loyal to that discourse that they need to not be thinking about themselves. They need to be thinking about the fate of those worse off than them, which incidentally I think is a really interesting influence on Chinese fiction, which we don't really have in the West in the same way. Just this imperative to think about the fate of others, you know.
0: Yeah, that's maybe why so much of it focuses on the subaltern, then.
1: Yeah, I think, and and it it has since May Fourth. You know, it's always right. been about the subaltern in some sense, as it was under Mao. I think the eighties weren't about the sub. I mean, I think everybody felt like they were themselves the victims of very difficult times and needed to sort of sublimate those experiences or grapple with their own actions, maybe. But I think now, because there is this sort of narrative of economic uplift, young people are really sort of struggling to justify ever writing about their own life. Hmm. And and I think that there is something quite sad about that.
0: So I wonder if they feel that pressure, not just sort of domestically, now just within the, the Chinese kind of writerly milieu, but also maybe from outside of China. I mean, because I, I, I can't help but notice that there is kind of an expectation that we in the West tend to saddle Chinese writers with as well. I mean, there is a conventional wisdom. I, I would think. I'm, I mean, by my lights, it's something like, uh, you know, the only literature worthy of the, the name is the stuff that is overtly critical, if not flat out dissident, right? And then the, this, this, this kind of claim that look, there, there simply isn't any decent literature coming out of China right now because censorship, right? But what your are painting is a picture of, I mean, it's, it's different though. I mean, it doesn't seem like necessarily censorship is what's keeping them from, uh, from from writing. Although I'm sure it's a factor. How would you you tackle that? Do you feel like with this book you're able to to transcend the Western gaze, as it were, and, and manage to to talk about what China is reading or what China's writers are writing on their own terms?
1: Yeah, um, I mean that's something which I think I've had to sort of grapple with quite a long time myself. Um, I I remember first of going to China, I think in 2012 uh, in in my capacity as a journalist Mm -hmm. and interviewing a ton of writers in a big room. And I just instantly felt like I needed to ask about censorship and to ask them about how they deal with it. And it felt like a brave thing for me to do. And the minute I did it, I just felt a bit rubbish about oh. the question. I felt quite ashamed that I'd asked them.
0: Well, but it, I it's, think, it's in, your, in your defense. I mean, that is a, it should be a factor. I mean, it's something we all It's are a huge all, factor. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think, I think it is, I mean, I really do think it is one of the biggest challenges uh, China faces for a sort of thriving cultural scene. I think what was shameful for me was that I had just walked in assuming that I was sort of there to bring this topic to the table and finally have some kind of constructive debate about censorship or something quite ignoring the fact that chinese writers have lived with it in various degrees for many many decades and they know they know what they're dealing with and they have all chosen very different ways of of dealing with that side of things some very innovatively some quite depressingly and obediently but i i still feel like it's it's their choice how they want to deal with those ultimately sort of sets of notes in terms of how they engage with the artistic process. And I just felt a little bit cheap, I think. You know, I, I haven't asked asked that question again. And lo and behold, the writers who want to talk about it, they bring it up pretty quickly. So, yeah, you know.
0: I imagine. I mean, it's it's not just in film though. I mean, I feel like in, in other genres of, of Chinese art, I remember in the mid 2000s talking to uh, somebody who ran... A major European film festival. He was at my house. We were having drinks. Uh, it was a, a little gathering of people, and he told me flat out that they were only interested in basically films that couldn't be screened in in China. And I said, "Is that you know? Is that just the stick? I mean, is that what you do? Is you, you go, you go?" Out? And that would have made sense to me. But no, he says, "No." He thought that the only that it was not possible for a film to have merit you know literary merit or you know merit as a film unless it were explicitly banned in china yeah. uh do you, do you feel like that that is still there in in western treatment i mean l- let's go back and and talk about when Mo Yan won the nobel prize in literature he came in for a real beating internationally by a, a lot of people who who thought that just because he was sort of part of the literary, literary establishment that therefore his his writing couldn't have merit.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I think also a lot of people came to his defense for the same reason. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a difficult thing for a lot of people to understand. You know, he, he'd recently just copied out the, the Yan'an um, edicts about, you know, how writers should... Uh, write for the party and things in, right. in public. And he compared censorship to being akin to airport security or something, you know? Um, and I think what people had sort of misunderstood was that Chinese writers operate in sort of a multifaceted way a lot of the time. And they have a sort of political um, public persona, and then they have their arts, which often has no relation um, uh The person, so there's a big separation between the art and the writing, and a lot. I mean, I remember Shangqi defended him and said he's being attacked for his politics, not for his writing. They're not the same thing, and that's quite hard for us to understand. I think you know we increasingly actually you know read things knowing what we think of somebody's politics, you know, and if we find out that their politics aren't to our taste, it'll definitely influence how we read their work. Yeah, and yeah. in China, I think a lot of people keep a very clear distance between those two things.
0: Yeah, it's it's becoming increasingly less tenable to do that in the United. I mean, just I think of J.K. Rowling, for example. Nobody reads her stuff the same now. I mean, everyone's mm-hmm. sort of looking for the, the sort of anti-trans subtext in everything she writes mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So you have a real fondness for Yan Uh He's the author of books like "Serve the People" and uh, "The Day the Sun Died" and "Ding Village." Those are you know, his best-known books outside of China. Uh, what is it that you love about Yen's work, and, and what would you recommend? Where would you recommend somebody start with his fiction?
1: Yeah, the reason I, I like it, it's quite hard to articulate why I like him so much. I just am constantly drawn to um, the worlds he creates. He has The Four Books is a particularly brilliant example of his, he calls it mythorealism, uh, his type of genre. Uh, it's set in a re-education camp and it's a kind of Rashomon-style approach to events. Within the, the re-education camp, there's a kind of biblical narrative. There's an author who tells two stories, one where he's kind of dobbing in all of his inmates, the other where he's trying to kind of make amends for being such an asshole to them all. <laughs> and then a really petulant child who's kind of a stand-in for the leader. The thing that's so um, like captivating about his work is Um, This may not appeal to a lot of people, but I feel like it's really imbued with a kind of like an illuminating sadness. Mm. It's deeply humane and beautifully written. And also he he creates worlds which I haven't come across in any fiction anywhere else in, in the world, really, from any other writers. It does feel unique to China. It feels unique to Chinese history without in any way... Caricaturing it or turning it into something that's sort of stereotypical in any way.
0: Oh, so the four books I haven't actually read. That is there an English translation of that?
1: Yeah, I'm, as far as I know, it's translated by um, Carlos Rojas or Rojas. I don't oh, know how his. Carlos, so, yeah. yeah, you
0: know he lives up the street from me. Oh
1: really? Yeah, I he mean lives, he's he, he he's an incre- he's an incredible translator, and um, he's a very good fit, I think, with uh, Yen Lianke, and um, always just you know. Anyway, it feels like the right fit for for Yan Oh,
0: well, well, Carlos and uh, Eileen, if you're listening, uh, apologies for not knowing me. <laughs> I'll, I'll go out in in um in atonement. I'll go out and buy a copy right away. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering though, do you ever feel like we cut Chinese writers too much slack? I mean, let's let's be honest here. Half of the literary devices that they deploy, uh, the parables and the, the metaphors, are just so on the nose sometimes that they would be dismissed with, you know, bored eye rolls by any New York editor where they submitted by an American writing in English. I mean, what, how, how are they able, because this is a constant feeling that I have. It's like, really? This is your, your metaphor. I mean, it's like, could you just not put this gigantic sign blinking and pointing at it? (laughs)
1: Who are you thinking of in particular?
0: It's just so many times that I've seen this. I mean, okay, so we can talk about Ma Jian, right? We can talk about Yu Hua. Lots of them who who do this.
1: Mm. I mean, I think Ma Jian is an interesting one in that I think I I get the sense, and, and I say this sort of respectfully, that living abroad for a long time, he's been sort of held captive almost by the need to be so overtly political. You know, uh, he really wants to to take aim and uh, and also I think it that's often what happens when you're at a distance from China, that you sort of start seeing it in a more and more kind of,
0: binary of metaphorical started.
1: binary. Yeah. Well, I I don't want to put words in his mouth and, and I, I really love his fiction, by the way. Um in a way his his metaphors don't bother me. They feel like suited to how angry he feels mm. and and how he and then I think in terms of the kind of eye rolling stuff I, I definitely come across it a lot with the younger a lot of the younger writers I've sure, read who sure. are just sort of, you know, forgivably trying to cut their teeth and like figure out how to to write and stuff. But I never I never really feel it with the the writers, you know, born in the fifties and sixties. Mm. Um
0: you know, that's good. You know, this is a very subjective thing, obviously. I was just wondering about your opinion. I, I wonder whether, you know, th- that might be the case for somebody like Mai Jian, writing from outside of China. I've often felt like I'm really impressed with the subtlety that you have to use when you're writing in China under the the gaze of the censors uh, to get away with it. I mean, maybe it forces you to be a little less uh, direct and, and on the nose.
1: Definitely, and I, I think... I think there's also something about um being on the nose which isn't um it's certainly not true to what life is like living in China you can't sure. just say what, whatever the hell you want and um so to write something on the nose is also not in any you know in in many ways representative of that experience. Um Yeah, so it's
0: got to be liberating to do that.
1: It's it's liberating to yeah. Um but I also think that there is um It's the kind of, I guess, the artistic process where you are trying to, through sort of perception, insight, and through a long period of time, you know, you spend years writing a story, find like acceptance for the truth of things in in an interesting way, rather than just stating them outright. Yeah. And that's what so many about. of them do. That's what writing's all about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it, it feels like, I, I mean, and I think we, we are all in agreement here that politics is kind of inescapable when writing about Chinese literature. And um, in part, that's because, you know, in China, the party since the Yan'an Forum in 41 has made it very clear that, you know, it's got a purpose, right? And this has been revived now under Xi Jinping. I mean, they've re-emphasized this once again. Is there any literature that you looked at for this book where you felt that you as a critic could relax the political muscle a bit and just take it in without the political framing. I mean, surely there are genres that get consumed in China without the reader being forced to confront the politics, right? Maybe?
1: Yeah. I mean, yes, in that, you know, if you look at the vast web novel industry, Ooh, it's And the we biggest. will, we will. <laughs> <laughs> we will. You know, they, they are, it's almost defined by how apolitical it is. You know, there's apps, it's it, there's not, there's nothing that can peg it to real life, really, to real experiences, to real people. It's pure escapism. And then I think that the question of whether something cannot be political is an interesting one, and I and I don't honestly know the answer, but I I do think in a country where there are imperatives that you have to sort of write on behalf of others, or on behalf of the collective, or on behalf of the party individual viewpoints or a sort of unique subjectivity is just sort of by virtue of itself political right and that is what makes it interesting as well
0: the decision to be apolitical is itself political
1: and, and i think the the government feel that too yeah, no, they i do. think you know yeah
0: so I, mean, I think being able to write wholly separately from politics is really only a privilege that writers in the prosperous liberal states of the west have really enjoyed traditionally and and japan and being places that that enjoy political freedom so we were we were talking earlier and you said something interesting that i thought might be worth unpacking a bit here uh, how this is changing also in the anglophone world especially in the years since since trump and brexit since 2016 can you can you talk a little bit about that idea to expand it what did you, what did you mean by that
1: yeah i think i i have really felt as to have a lot of people i'm not saying anything new that you know, since the trump administration since brexit you know the rise of right wing populism in various european countries there has been a kind of a very uncomfortable awakening for a lot of people that we're not on the same page as each other. Right. There isn't a sort of an agreed reality. And I think even the New York Times ran a piece, you know, this of New Year, it's like America's reality crisis. And I think, you know, I remember sort of reading like Salman Rushdie saying that he thought people wrote magical realism when there was a sense that nobody was on the same page. And I think. Chinese writers have been doing that for a very long time. There's been a very clear master narrative. And then in my experience, most literature, even if it's trying to adhere to that master narrative, doesn't do it because it's kind of impossible when one person is just, you know, hammering away and writing something, other stuff comes out. But, you know, China has a lot of very interesting, sort of strange, wacky genres. And I think we will increasingly see that as our previously agreed narratives are being Often quite rightly deconstructed. They're being reinterrogated, rewritten. and people won't be able to just write you know middle class family stories anymore and feel like it's part of contemporary society hmm. in the hmm. same way.
0: Megan, we were chatting the other day and and we both kind of went went down this sort of uh, memory lane, this nostalgia trip about the literary scene in Beijing. let's see where we both lived for a very long time. Uh, for those of our listeners who weren't lucky enough to have been able to experience that firsthand, I was only kind of glancingly familiar with it myself being kind of, you know, a literary Tyro. Um, can you paint a picture of what it was like in Beijing in the literature scene in the <laughs> Um,
1: Oh, God, I wish I was more embedded into it than I was. Um, obviously, it began for me with hanging out a lot at the bookworm.
0: Oh, God, I miss the bookworm. I know.
1: Um but you know I didn't speak great Chinese, and you know they offered uh, bilingual talks and I, I got to know a lot of writers and writing through there and also, I loved the people who worked in the shop, you know they would recommend really interesting books for me and then I think by extension, there was uh, a sense that a lot of the bookshops that were flourishing uh, in various cities, actually not just Beijing, were full of real sort of literary enthusiasts and I spent a lot more time, more and more time in, in bookstores when I was there. They used to be the ones that would sell, you know, knockoff DVDs of art house movies, which I would <laughs> stock up on back in the day. Um, but, you know, they, and they tended to also overlap with, you know, a lot of the artists who are sort of working out on, I forget which ring road now, but, you know, we go to their kind of openings and things and maybe yeah,
0: yeah.
1: um, various writers and books being sold there at the same time. And, it, it genuinely felt more exciting being there than being here uh, and i missed Here's it Here's london right
0: for you right now yeah
1: um i shouldn't say that it's you know we have a flourishing <laughs> <laughs> publishing scene here but it just it felt kind of manageable and exciting at the same time i know what you mean was, exactly yeah.
0: and i love that overlap i mean people who were in film uh you know playwrights musicians visual artists all kind of gathering uh, it was it was a real scene in the, in the in the truest yeah. sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Ah, those were the days. <laughs> so, Megan, as much as I enjoyed what you wrote about the more writerly writers, I have to say the chapter that really grabbed me, that really fascinated, well, fascinated and horrified me was your chapter on web fiction. I mean, it's something that seems pretty unique to China. I mean, certainly in scale, even if some of the genre conventions are borrowed from other East Asian countries. Uh, what should we know about Chinese web fiction, about the economics of it, about you know who produces it, who consumes it, and how the government reacts to this.
1: Yeah, so I think internet fiction started off as a very sort of niche and exciting thing with Shui and I think writing well, some of the earlier yeah, yeah. stuff, yeah, and Annie Balbay and uh, uh, people like that. But they they quickly sort of fell by the wayside. They they were writing things that weren't welcome, and um, they took up writing elsewhere. Imagine
0: um, Shui when writing something that's not welcome. <laughs>
1: Uh, exactly um so uh yeah they unfortunately uh lost their footing pretty quickly and it was just replaced by this um you know who would have thought it but um growing and vast industry of fantasy writers who um you know churn out sometimes 10, 20,000 words a day. And people would check in and read each chapter each day in a kind of modern day Dickensian serialization process. <laughs> and they have absolutely exploded. There's now 24 million titles um, available, oh My God, 430 million active readers. And
0: that's a third of the population of China. I mean, that's insane.
1: Apparently. I mean, again, I who knows? But As you probably see on on commutes, you just see people scrolling through these novels, and um, I sort of can't believe how popular they are. Really, Um, not only because they're generally not great, but because you know, people are in this sort of digital age. People are still reading. People are still like tuning in every day to like devour stories, and um, that's kind of impressive as well. Yeah, but you know, I think. They've become this sort of clash of, uh, it's the sort of main fault line in China between sort of government and big business. And they seem to sort of represent that big clash where uh, it's a way for young people to make money if they get, if their IP is sold for, you know, one of these TV shows or an anime uh, manga adaptation. But as a result, they've become really popular, and the government can't stand it. So there's, there's, you know, two big sort of titans fighting it out to um, control the content now.
0: And who are those? Two? Are they, I mean, just the industry itself, or is it? Is there one or two companies that are sort of taking up the banner?
1: Yeah, it's a uh, Tencent mm-hmm. um, who own the sort of most of the uh, online reading platforms now, and and, and the government. That, yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: Hey, so I'm I'm curious though. Uh, you know, in the United States or in the English-speaking world, we've seen things. You know, we we have a, a gigantic fan fiction phenomenon, and it, it's related, right? A lot of this stuff starts off as sort of fan fiction, based on a favorite anime or manga series, based on characters from a beloved wuxia or shenxia kind of novel. We've seen this in the in the states. You had like all this Harry Potter fan fiction. You had, of course, the Success of of books like Fifty Shades of Grey, which started off as as Twilight fan fiction, I suppose. I've never actually read it, read it at all. I mean, you know, it, it sounds horrifyingly bad. Uh,
1: I've never read it either.
0: <laughs> but you know, this is like it's like this this phenomenon happening just every day, right? Every day, some new piece of of web literature is picked up for to be turned into a movie. I mean, I know my sister in law is a is a was a very successful screenwriter wrote a lot of, you know, well-loved uh, Chinese television series. But now, she says, basically, they've been replaced. I mean, that uh, they just, all they do all day is scour the web and, and see what's trending uh, in, in this, you know, free spending demographic. And they don't know, that they've got a surefire hit. I mean, that's depressing, right? I mean, it can't be doing good things for literature.
1: No, I don't think it is, unfortunately, and it's also not doing great things for the writers themselves. I think they are—they are all incent, you know. There's so many of them, and they're all kind of given these incentives that they might get snapped up. But as a result of trying to keep eyeballs, to, to keep people reading, they are reduced to sort of either having to pander to this very active audience, you know, who are telling them what they want to happen, or plagiarism, copying other stories just to sort of literally get the words out each day. And so they they really do all share quite sort of unique um, algorithmic traits that feel really predictable and you know a product a product of it being kind of turned into a sort of grotesque business. you know it's it's just a huge industry of free market fiction which is about economic leniency and still kind of avoiding all cultural, Sort of taboos or restrictions, although huh. not so much anymore. But anyway, yeah, yeah.
0: That, maybe that yeah. is the bright side of it, the silver lining, as it were. Uh, that there's a lot of queer themes in it. There's a lot of yeah. of, of what they call BL, or you know, that's I suppose the English word, but the danmei fiction. Can you talk talk about danmei fiction and and what role that plays in this larger genre of of internet fiction?
1: Yeah, so danmei fiction, it, it's boys love fiction um, written mainly by female writers. And uh, it sort of came over from Japan. I don't know when, very popular there, but it's become, I think, the most popular form of romance in in China for yeah. young girls to read. I mean, I, I remember going to Hong Kong to a sort of Comic Con exhibition where I was trying to sort of get some manga to read and some comics. And I think three girls told me the only romance you need to read about is Danmei. Like that's what all girls want to read. Mm. And the, the theory is that... Um, it reveals that a lot of girls are still feeling dissatisfied with the role that women have to play in society. And they they love reading about two lovers who are completely free of any kind of incumbent uh, obstacles that face girls.
0: Ah, interesting.
1: I mean, the other thing worth mentioning is the minute you read it or you watch it, you just sort of stop noticing that it's B.L. and um, It's just a romance, you know. It's a, a story that you're just in
0: what about i mean there but there isn't a, a you know as much lesb- lesbian themed fiction I and mean, there's some but it doesn't seem to be nearly as popular what what do you suppose is the reason for that
1: yeah i think it's because lesbian fiction in particular seems to be very quickly censored and banned i think there's a few male writers who have really wanted to include like lesbian love stories and that's what's got their their novels taken down whereas you know, there's quite a sort of famous um, writer called Priest, um, and her novel *Guardian*, *Guardians*, or *Guardians* uh, was about uh, two sort of super sleuths who were in love with each other. And for the TV show, they just got a sort of straightening up, and it was turned into, you know, socialist brotherly love. So there was something, <laughs> something, you know, which has become a bit of a like joke now. You just kind of have homoerotic undertones, but it's all about kind of commitment to friendship and loyalty to each other in the mode of kind of socialist heroes. Mm -hmm. So I think as long as there's no sex at all, the government has been sort of happy with close male relationships in the way that, for some reason, uh, two girls is absolutely not okay.
0: I remember 20 years ago or so, I was approached by uh, the director Stanley Kwan from from Hong Kong, and I, I ended up subtitling a wonderful film that he did called Lan Yu. Uh, But it turns out, and I didn't know this at the time, but that was web fiction originally. Oh, really? I, I think it was. I mean, it was like the, the, it was, I can't remember the name of it now uh, of the original novel. But, you know, it's, it's a, it was like the first big uh, sort of gay love story out of China.
1: That's not the Beijing Comrades. Yeah, it
0: is Beijing Comrades. Yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, Beijing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, It had its origins as as like a sort of underground piece of web fiction.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize it started off as web fiction. I know it was you know it, the the author is still unknown, still anonymous, and I think Stanley Quan, he didn't he think that it was Wang Xiaobo.
0: Yeah, he thought it was Wang Xiaobo. Yeah, um, which makes sense to me. I mean, you know, if if, if people don't know, he's a wonderful satirist who. Got really popular in the early nineties, I guess. Uh, the the golden age, the silver age, um, the, these books are. Yeah, used. yeah. Um,
1: um, I think a lot of people then, but I think a lot of people thought that it might have been written by uh, a sympathetic female friend. Um, uh. So that's the other theory of why Danmei has been so popular in China is that a lot of girls are very close friends with young gay um, boys who have not been able to express themselves and they've written these love stories on their behalf uh, uh, that's one of the theories
0: uh, those are the old I, I really enjoyed subtitling as a as a gig because you know if you just kind of timed it right you kind of knew when all the directors would, of, of indie films would be desperate to get their films into competition invariably they had already asked some friend of theirs a, a Chinese person who spoke some English to do the subtitling and then you know they showed it to an English or American friend and they were like ghastly Um, and and they they immediately had to scramble to find somebody who could do subs quickly and so you could charge them kind of extortionate rent for
1: (laughs) sounds great it was a great gig
0: so um let's move on to science fiction which is i think is 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 fantastic i was commiserating with you uh not long before this 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 conversation about how cagey certain science fiction writers are about talking about the chineseness uh I, I ask everybody, you know, what, if anything, makes Chinese fiction, science fiction, distinctly Chinese? And nobody seems to want to answer me. Can you give it a shot? Is there something <laughs> that you think is sort of common themes in, in Chinese science fiction?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we might be in some agreement in that. Um, and it's really pegged to um tzu whose sci-fi is truly sort of hopeful and optimistic. It's kind mm, of... Yeah. Um, it's epic, but it's it's devoted to, you know, an exploration of the stars essentially and seeing what's out there and embracing the unknown. I mean, I think the other thing that makes Chinese science fiction distinctive really is it's quite, as far as I can tell, quite an elite genre in that it's written by very highly educated, impressive scientists and engineers and physicists. And they're all using kind of very kind of uh, exciting cutting edge ideas, but writing quite often sort of Ray Bradbury-esque and simple tales about what the future might hold. And and with that comes a a sort of a a genuine degree of optimism about where technology might take us and um, AI and deep learning programs, and even sort of imagining and not in a kind of uh, negative way, the possibility that machines could uh, possess more humanity than we do. And no. that, that could be a sort of an exciting thing. And I don't really feel, you know, so much Chinese fiction is really dystopian and sort of strangely, a lot of it sci-fi isn't.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've made that observation too about the kind of lack of really heavily dystopian science fiction in coming out of China. I mean, the, the laugh line I get when I talk about this is that, you know, uh, we're in our Black Mirror phase here in the West, and and China's still in its Star Trek phase. You know, to boldly go where no man has gone before. That's that's, that's fantastic. I I do agree with you. A long time ago, I interviewed this philosopher named Anna Greenspan. I think it was like in 2013 or 2014. Uh, she's a Canadian uh, academic. She had written this great book uh, called Shanghai Future: Modernity Remade, and she talked about how Chinese people seem to have just a, a different posture toward futurity than people from from North America or Western Europe. Uh, and since that conversation, I mean, the profundity and the, the truth of what she had pointed out has just gotten clearer and clearer to me. I, I've come to believe that it, it it makes a significant difference in the way that people interact with technology. Um, the way they imagine a the future, obviously, is represented in sci-fi. Uh, science fiction is, right? It's about imagining a future and the technology uh so integral to it. What about, you know, is there a Chinese politics in Chinese science fiction? In other words, like, have you read books where China as a nation state or China as a civilization or whatever is projected into a future? And and what are the kind of roles that it has in that imagined future?
1: I mean, the the first person who springs to mind is um, Bao Shu, who's a sort of, I think still still writing, he starts off writing Yosef's in fan fiction.
0: Oh, interesting. Um
1: but he he's one of the few writers to have got into a bit of trouble with the, the stories he's written. Mm. Um, one of them is called, I think, Songs from Ancient Earth, um, where he imagines a future where the, the universe is, um, uh, I think there's a, a, a spaceship has crashed on a distant star and um, it's been sort of indoctrinated with red songs, you know, the only <laughs> thing that's kind of, <laughs> the only thing that sort of remains from earth that they're all kind of computers as far as i can tell on this spaceship um all that remains of earth is red songs and and red culture and red history and you know he he sees that as a sort of a a damning thing you know we can't um
0: remember what i was saying about on the nose metaphors right
1: (laughs) yeah exactly there you go but i think one thing that again and i'm drawing on writers that people probably know quite well, um, sort of Hao Jin Fang and um, Liu Zixin, Uh there is the thinking, they tend to think about the world, not in terms of just China, but as a world having to come together hmm. through something. Um, you know, it's quite sort of in keeping with the um, official Olympics message, but I think they, they do dare to imagine it. It's not something that Uh, They don't seem to be the kind of the arch-nationalists and uh, patriots that want to just sort of see uh, China sort of taking over the world and, you know, they're just sort of interested in what kind of partnerships different cultures will be making to bring the world
0: together. That in itself is very hopeful. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. So it's such a short book. I mean, there there are things that we haven't talked about yet. I would love to talk a little bit about maybe, you know, uh, the crime and and legal genre of fiction, sort of the equivalent of the John Grisham <laughs> or what have you, um, but yeah, but there are, are probably lots of other genres and certainly lots of writers uh, that you would have included had you been given more space. Before we, we we talk about what you had left out, let's talk about a couple more things that you did include, uh, including you know these different. I, I would say genre fiction is is really important to understanding a culture. I mean, if I were looking at the United States, right, from some, like, imaginary, distant perspective, I, I wouldn't think it would be fair if all we read was, like, you know, Donna Tartt and Don DeLillo, right? It, it, we would have to read Danielle Steele. <laughs> We'd have to read, you know, John Grisham or – or I, I was looking – I was horrified. I was looking at, like, best-selling authors in the United States over the last 50 years or something. And it was – I mean, I was – you know, Dan Brown or whatever. It's like, ah! Uh, um but, <laughs> yeah,
1: don't don't check bestseller charts for um for hope about the arts. I would say. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I I <laughs> I, I, I I was actually doing that just so that I, I, I was curious. You know, like if you had done this same exercise from out from China looking at the United States, what you would have selected. But uh, you did you did include uh, some genre fiction, writer. Can you see, can you talk about you know uh, like like I said the the kind of legal genre and some of that has been really successful. Like you know, in the name of the people became a, a, a wildly popular and very good. I have to say. Uh, television show
1: yeah yeah so um i think joel mason wrote uh, in the name of the people as an online novel yeah, started yeah. off writing it um and it was kind of tied in with um the anti-corruption campaign yeah, that was right. launched I, I forget when it was you'll know better than me yeah, 2014 um, 2013 2014, there, yeah there you go um and you know did you watch the tv show yeah i did i did yeah um and i think the thing that really seemed to capture people's imagination was um, they really wanted to see corruption being tackled head on. And right. it was really pleasing and really exciting to see, um, you know, the, the sort of justice system cracking down on these things, which they felt was pervasive and also untouchable for many, many years. And uh, I think a lot of people sort of see it as the government kind of playing a bit of a blinder, because um, it looked like they were kind of, finally allowing corruption narratives to be screened or published. Uh, and it looked like they were the ones who were like kicking its ass basically. Um, but, you know, as you say, it was also really enjoyable and um, a lot of fun for people to watch, um, primarily because they needed it. It was like a form of catharsis, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that was a huge hit a few years ago.
0: Yeah. Uh, what are the other maybe really surprise genres that, that are, are big? I mean, you know, here, I, I know what to sort of expect when I walk into a bookstore. I know, like, you know, there's going to be the the kind of hard-boiled detective novel. There's going to be the, the um, you know, the bodice ripper romance novels, the Harlequin, whatever. I, I mean, there's, you know, pretty established genres. There's going to be the fantasy and the sci-fi. And, you know, we all know the difference between fantasy and sci-fi. What What, what is there in China that we don't have? In the west
1: yeah so those i mean i actually didn't really include much of this and i didn't read much of it as um workplace fiction which oh. is about the kind of cutthroat office politics of people straight out of university trying to get ahead in the office and it's really really popular people find it very i think consoling to sort of one get tips or just you know Find ways of at least acknowledging that these things happen and it sucks. Yeah. Um, and then there was uh, it was a really fantastic uh, novel called *The Civil Servant's Notebook*, which was translated by Eric Abrahamson, and it's really funny. It's about like a mayoral um, it's a mayoral politics basically, and it has staplers talking to staples, you know, philosophizing about the nature of who's better off and uh, how you get ahead. Um, is by sort of shouting thief and stealing something from someone's pocket, you know. And <laughs> it's just really kind of down and dirty and gritty. And the government kind of waved it through as sort of an example of how you shouldn't behave. It wasn't sort of seen as brutal satire of what does exist. But it's it's a really brilliant book. I'm not sure how popular it was, but I, I would hope it was very popular.
0: <laughs> Workplace fiction. I, I remember, I've seen, I know there was a book called... Do La La, or something like that? Um, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Um, th- th- it was made into a film by Xu Jinglei, who's a very, very talented actress and, and director, um, called Go La La Go, or something like that. But she, she, that's it was, right, yeah. yeah. The, is that what we're talking about? That's workplace work vision? Absolutely, okay.
1: yeah. that's you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh,
0: yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I wonder do we have that in in I guess I've never read anything like that but I mean nine to five I suppose uh, I mean,
1: yeah kind of Ali McBeal oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah there you, or, go, you there know go. that that sort of stuff Ally um McBeal. it feels quite similar to that yeah, yeah
0: yeah yeah. oh great yeah so it's not entirely <laughs> alien um no yeah fantastic so what? What about stuff that you couldn't include that you would have really loved to? I mean, because you know, it, this this is only a hundred pages, and and I mean, that is, I should say, because of this this particular imprint. It's you know, Columbia Global Reports, uh, which you know is their slim little volumes. And I've read a few of them; they're very very good. What would yeah, you have um, um, included? Who would you have included if you had been given more space?
1: Yeah. So there's, I mean, actually, just a lot of young writers that I think are really impressive, but because of I guess the limitations, as you say, of the, of the, the length, um, they just didn't sort of find a natural home in many ways. There's a kind of a whole sort of new generation of surrealists who are really exciting and interesting. Hmm. And I couldn't, I just, it almost feels quite appropriate that they didn't fit in to the, to the book itself that, you know, they are a kind of niche uh, group of writers, but I, I think they are, they are representative of, I guess how young people are trying to sort of grapple with this idea that they don't know what to be and they don't know where where to be, and um,
0: it's kind of a common condition for young people. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is. It's a com- but you know like I, I remember reading um is it Shuju Xuji- oh, Yen, mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. who owns uh One Way Street Books, but I remember him saying he he really wished that he could sort of come across young poets who just felt lost, and this was of you know a couple of maybe ten years ago. And I think there's just a lot of them now. You know, a lot of people who are just a young people a bit lost and a lot of them are sublimating that and writing really kind of great fiction as a result. And then there are kind of other writers. Like There's an absolutely amazing writer called Chen um, Jianan,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who I think is actually now studying at Iowa doing an MFA.
0: Oh, that's a good program. Um, yeah.
1: It's a great program and she's an incredibly talented writer. She wrote a book called People Who Don't Eat Eggs. Um, it hasn't been translated yet, but I mean, I absolutely loved it. And um, in the end, there just sort of wasn't enough space for me to devote what I wanted to to it. Um, but I would highly recommend people read a lot of her English. She writes in English also. She And uh, she's a very, very illuminating writer. Just check her out online.
0: Yeah, although as a person who eats too many eggs, I don't know if I could. <laughs> <laughs> That's a... Uh- Fantastic. <laughs> Megan, what a treat it's been to talk to you. I mean, I, I highly recommend this book if for anyone who wants to to you know plunge into the world of of literature in China. And again, I think it really ties in with this theme that we've been doing about thinking about thinking about China because I think you know the lens of humanities is one that we do not apply often enough when we think about China. And it's it's super eye opening and it's a, a fun and very very easy read and you'll learn a, a ton. So congrats on the book, which is again, it's just out like this week uh, in the U.S. In the U.K., you still have to wait another couple of months. So um, th- thanks so much. There's there's also, by the way, uh, chapters in there that we didn't get to, for example, about Tibetan and Xinjiang themed literature or, or Mongolian themed. I mean, there's a whole kind of scathing takedown of a lot of the, the, the stuff that uh, what's the name, the Wolf Totem guy, uh, it's, the General. Yeah, 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 General. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's a fantastic little read, and uh, I highly recommend it. Speaking of recommendations, let us move on to recommendations. But uh, first, a, a quick word from our sponsor. I mean, remember that the, the Seneca podcast is powered by Subchina, and if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca or with any of the other shows in the network, the best thing you can do to support us is to subscribe to Subchina, access our daily newsletter. It's just a fantastic just compilation uh, with commentary, from our own Jeremy Goldcorn uh, and uh, his, his crack team. So check it out, and you'll be doing us a great service if you subscribe. Uh, there's always really good discount rates available if you look. So let's move on to recommendations. Megan, what do you have for us?
1: Um, the first thing I'd like to recommend is a book by Yi Yun-li, who most people have probably heard of, um... She's a Chinese writer who moved uh, from China to the US, I think, in the late 90s to mm-hmm. study as an immunologist. And uh, it turns out she's one of the finest writers in English um, anywhere in the last 20 years, I would say. Um, so any of her novels or short stories are worth reading. But the book I want to recommend is um, Dear Friend from My Life, I Write to You in My Life. And it's her. it's a kind of love letter to reading that the authors that have got her through periods of depression, but also made her the writer that she is. But I also think in, in for me it was a really important book because uh it was also about the importance of reading out of your own cultural sphere. Um the mainly Irish writers, you know, she she loves William Trevor and John McGregor, um, but also people like Turgenev and things. Um but she's such a kind of in, incredible writer, penetrating and rationed, and it's unlike anything I've ever read really. And so I would highly recommend people check it out. And I have one others. Yeah, yeah, please go. Um, The New Zealand uh, singer-songwriter Aldous Harding, uh, who has a new album out, and I haven't listened to that yet, but her last three albums are really odd and really brilliant. And um, you could check out her music video, The Barrel, just for a little idea of what she's like, but I think she's great.
0: Oh, fantastic. That sounds like uh, I'll definitely check that out. Uh, So my recommendation is When You Finish Saving the World by Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, who's an, a very talented writer, actor, comic. Um, he, he was in The the Network, The Social Network, right? Uh, you all know he played Mark Zuckerberg in that. Um, in this, it's, it's a weird thing. It's an audible original. This kind of medium is kind of difficult to describe. He plays a guy named Nathan, who's a kind of slightly non-neurotypical kind of brilliant guy who's a new father, and he's having a great deal of difficulty connecting emotionally with his, his infant son, Ziggy. Um, the first section, uh, let's, I'm going to call it an audio epistolary drama. So Nathan's recording a kind of diary into his iPhone that his therapist has asked him to do. Just like to record these, you know, these his, his thoughts into his iPhone and send them along. Uh, so in these audio missives, we learn all about his relationship with his wife, Rachel, who is a very different person, you know, kind of a moral crusader, do-gooder, then it jumps forward to the suddenly to the year twenty thirty five, and we hear from his teenage son, this kid Ziggy, and it's funny because the world that he builds, you know, it, it, he he's now he's not talking into an iPhone; he's talking to an AI counselor during these sessions that he's he's been assigned to complete because he's physically attacked another student. And then, um, you know, it, he creates this whole very believable kind of social media world and uh, world where where people are like creating music and selling it. To he keeps talking about you know he's got a big audience in Lijiang, China, <laughs> in Yunnan. It's 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 very funny. This he's like a, a singer songwriter, um, but he's he's also uh, he's a jerk in a, in a lot of ways. He's kind of like nakedly capitalistic and and stuff, uh, and and doesn't get along with his parents. Uh, but he has this whole vocabulary of oddball you know new twenty thirty five teenage slang and the is really great this kid named Finn Wolfhard who was in in Stranger Things and then there's the Rachel section so it's three three parts and then the Rachel section is uh she's voiced by the actress in in the film Booksmart Dev Dever I guess Dever uh and she's recorded into a cassette recorder uh back in like the early 2000s uh in tapes that she sent to her pre Nathan boyfriend who who is serving in Afghanistan uh and it starts off as this sort of manic comedy you know Jesse Eisenberg he's very very funny but at the end of it you you he, he realize he's he's actually brought it all home and gotten you know pretty profound and, and sentimental but um has let you kind of draw c- connect dots it's not it's it's just the the pieces fit together really nicely without being f- wedged in it, it's it's not a perfect performance but it's Damn good. And it's really original. I've never come across anything quite like it. And the voice actors are just, they have to be heard to believe. They're, they're, they're just, they're amazing. They're so talented. So uh, that's my rec- recommendation. Uh, apparently, they're making a movie out of it, which I, I think is, I can safely assume is going to ruin it. Because this is definitely meant to be consumed in audio form. It's called When You Finish Saving the World. And uh, it's actually free if you're an Audible subscriber. So check it out. Megan. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed myself.
0: Yeah, I and I, I can't wait to see what what comes out of you next. Would do you have something <laughs> something great. Pl- I mean, you just published this book, so I shouldn't ask <laughs> you that. But yeah, yeah, don't. Tour it's the
1: killer question. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. good.
0: Well, relax. You know, go. You know, take a vacation somewhere and enjoy yourself. Uh you've earned it. You've earned it. Hopefully we'll have you back on again soon for for whatever. Uh, well, I'll come up with some excuse. it's been <laughs> such a pleasure.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Kaiser.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you'd drop us an email at Seneca at com, or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile... Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at AtSupChinaNews, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Sinica Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.